Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. My lift, I seize pollution. Those dirty fuels are burning. The Earth's whole climate's churning. Clean energy solution. My ride, I scans the bill. Fossil fuels are cheap. Wind and solar too steep. Drill, baby, drill. great new music dave huh you love that song by fred lancia good tune it uh, reminds me of some of the country stuff that i'm working on right now uh, before i head to nashville well I, when i have a cold i can do it that much better which i think i'm developing here because of my irresponsible governor who won't get out of the way something's yeah. happening to my, my system right now so, yeah not not good yeah i always joke with my students that uh whenever i have one of those colds that my, my johnny cash cover band is, is going back into action so yeah, that's good. It's good, good. No, but if, if I had a voice like Fred's, you know, I, I have to admit, I wouldn't be messing around with podcasts. Uh, I would be there next to Joe Castiglione calling Red Sox games. All right. All right. I'll, well, maybe there won't be a season four. Who knows? <laughs> Take some voice lessons. No, but we're off to a very good start with, with season three. So uh, quite a few uh, downloads, at least by our standards this week. So I guess my read on that is um, less content, less frequently is, is what the listeners want. So um, the, the plan going forward, I think we decided, Dave, is, is a 10-minute episode every six months, and, and that should keep everybody happy. like it. I like it. We'll get maybe up to um, 500,000 listeners a week. Yeah, so. that's right. I think there's some kind of geometric sequence thing going on there. So if we can just find the right multiplier, we, this thing can explode. So when does your school begin? Is coming up here soon, or do you guys wait? We're, we start after Labor Day. We're old school, which is great. Yeah, well, we've got, uh, of course, you know, faculty conference coming up and those kind of things, and and then we'll have first day of classes is before Labor Day, and then we, you know, get, get rolling after after Labor Day. So it's it's definitely starting to feel like it's getting real. So people will start to work about three or four weeks from now. I mean, and then that's after you're in service, correct? Because you're in charge now, so you can kind of make that in service like two hours, twenty minutes, or something like that. It, you're not gonna they're gonna keep people for two days, are you? <laughs> It You're the boss man. You're the boss yeah, man. That's right. I know. If, if only it was that easy. Good. Well, we're going to shift our focus now to our required reading. And uh, we're back. Book one of Aristotle's Politics, chapter three, short chapter, and really a, a chapter that kind of introduces themes for the next several sections of the work. So we're going to talk about that a little bit, but then also give some broader context, do a little more application. Last week, it was more summary of what Aristotle was saying and kind of introduction to the politics as a whole. This week, we're going to try to do more of a, of a, of a dive into some of the ways that the issues Aristotle is taking up uh, connect to our contemporary debates and, and uh, even the events of the last week. So Dave, I know you want to start up with a little bit of review. So why don't you uh, take it away and, and help us think a little more about the, the four causes of Aristotle that you introduced last week. Yeah, so I, I think that's important to keep in mind this method that he uses or employs to understand the nature of a thing. Everything, as as I mentioned last week, has a primary cause. And, and I don't think I gave an example, but let's just use the example uh, 
right at hand, which is the human being. Uh, human beings are brought into being uh, given reproduction. Uh, so we know, right, that the union of a male and a female uh, produces, uh, some, in some cases, a child. Uh, so the human being's primary cause is the union of male and female. That human being also has a material essence. We human beings have material needs. A child born into the world needs milk uh, to survive, needs food uh, thereafter, uh, also has other material needs, shelter, warmth, etc. So there is a material um, element to who we are as human beings. But we are not simply material creatures. Uh, we also have uh, a, a definition to us uh, that is provided by the form of a human being. A human is different than a cow. Well, why? A cow does not possess logos or thought or speech, whereas a human does. Do cows make sounds? Do they say moo? Yes, they do. But moo is not a judgment on whether the grass tastes good uh, or whether the grass is greener on the other side of the field. Human beings make judgments. They use their logos, thought, or speech. And this is distinctive uh, to the human being. This form is distinctive uh, to the human type. And finally, uh, a human being, uh, is, nature is defined by their purpose. What is the end of the human being? The end of the individual human being is happiness. And as you mentioned last week, the end of human beings coming together in common enterprises is justice or the best way of life, the best regime way of life. So it's important to remember that every single thing like a human being has a nature and there are four aspects to our nature. I think this kind of sets up uh, Aristotle's discussion of the city because he's going to say that at the end of the day, we as political animals come together as communities and that's natural. We, we come together and we form in his time, city-states uh, in all times, political communities. So politics is natural. And then the question becomes, can you do politics correctly? Which means, can you do politics in a way that tends toward justice? Or will you do politics incorrectly in a way that tends toward injustice? I think we've got several things to talk about uh, along those lines in the reading that we have before us today. But one of the things that is, is noteworthy in this, in this short chapter is you get a little bit of a glimpse into Aristotle's method uh, and the way that he investigates subjects and how he approaches the pursuit of a philosophic understanding. I think that's worth talking about a little bit. It, it's a point of contrast maybe between Aristotle and, and Plato in, in some ways. And I think it also is helpful for us is because I think it has a lot of relevance to the way that we approach political questions just in the public square and, and just common debate uh, today. So he, he talks in this, in this chapter uh, about starting with our current conceptions, right? The, those things which are the, the received opinion, the normal way of thinking about things. Uh, you might say the common judgment, the common sense of a matter that you just would find if you were to talk to the average person on the street, give them a chance to reflect a little bit on a question and, and see what they would say. And, you know, wh where, where are we on these things? But he doesn't stop there, right? So he's not a pollster. Uh, he's not somebody who's a, a sociologist in that sense, who just sort of wants to get a, a lay of the land. Okay, well, the, this group thinks this way, and that group thinks that way, and let's report it all back to headquarters, and, and now we know what everyone thinks. Uh, of course, in democratic politics, it's important to know what people think, and, and that's something that certainly the pollsters are interested in, and, and the campaigns are interested in. But as a philosopher, Aristotle wants to start there, but not 
end there. And so he talks about acquiring something in the way of knowledge, which, which I like the phrasing there. There's a certain kind of modesty there that we want to acquire something. So we're going to have to pay for it, right? There's you know, some work that's going to be required. You have to pay for your knowledge. Uh, and it's not a cash payment, right? It's, it's, it's effort. Uh, it's an intellectual effort. It's, it's a willingness to, to look closely at a matter and think about it carefully to use that logos, to use that, that reasoning capacity and apply it to the problem that's before you. Uh, we want to acquire something in the way of knowledge, right? So uh, we're going to start with the current conceptions and try to move toward knowledge. And of course, that knowledge, if, if we've done this properly, should be superior to the current conceptions. It might build upon them. It might be similar to them. Uh, it might overlap in many ways with those current conceptions, but it should be better. Uh, and even, even if the content of it is in some ways the same, it'll be better for being grounded uh, upon a deeper foundation um, of, of the truth. And so, you know, I think maybe get your thoughts on this, Dave, but this is, I think, one of the, the, the keys as we enter into the study of Aristotle, that I think our, our day and age, and maybe just democratic days and ages, could particularly benefit from uh, this, this willingness to, to move from the subjective opinion and, and, and to appreciate that, you know, to have a, a right uh, interest in that, but a willingness to say there's more than that. And, and that there's something that we need to try to transcend in that in the, to get in the way of knowledge and, and to acquire that by the effort that's necessary. Yeah, here in part, he, he mimics his teacher, Plato. I think most of us are familiar with the Republic. And the Republic begins, or book one of the Republic begins with Socrates going down to the Piraeus. So Socrates is also interested in the conventions of the day. And certainly the conversation that gets going within the Republic is what is the best life or what is justice? And, and what Plato will, will place uh, in uh, Socrates' interlocutor's mouths are conventional opinions as to what justice is or what the best life is. Uh, for example, uh, justice is uh, paying one's debts and, and telling the truth, uh, or justice is benefiting one's friends and harming one's enemies, or, or even uh, the most prevalent uh, still today definition of justice, that justice is the advantage of the stronger. Uh, so there in the Republic, Socrates is working through incorrect conventional conceptions of what justice and the best life are so that he can arrive at that conception. Uh, Aristotle does something similar, but Aristotle's method in a way, I think, grants more respect, per se, to, to conventions. He's, he's going to build off of those conventions right, to something uh, more uh, uh, philosophically accurate, uh, more, more correct, uh, more right. Uh, and he's going to give, a, I think, um, an explanation as, as to why human beings adopt the conventions that they do. Uh, why human beings think about politics the way they do, why human beings think about household management the way they do. So in kind of explaining uh, things from the ground up uh, and giving credence in part to those things, I, I think in a way he's kinder and gentler uh, with convention uh, than his counterpart, Plato. Yeah, and I guess to me, this suggests at least two quick takeaways for us. Uh, number one, I think there's a, a an optimism that comes out of this, right? That you know, we look at our, our very divided 
United States. And, you know, our, our new opening music is, is all about that, framing these issues. You know, my left eye sees this and my right eye sees that. And I think we feel that way about our politics. So we're just so divided. How, you know, how do you ever get out of this? And it seems like it can only get worse. Um, but I think what Aristotle is suggesting, there actually is a possibility of making some progress and, you know, taking those conventional views and learning from them and then developing um, a deeper understanding based on that. And, and so, you know, not a perfect meeting of the minds, of course, we're not, we're not anticipating that, but that there actually could be some progress toward a greater measure of consensus. But the, the caveat on that, as I've tried to introduce already, is that it depends upon a willingness to engage these questions reasonably and especially humbly. And, and that's something that's in short supply. And this is the thing that, you know, if, if we're going to make progress, people are going to have to model, begin to model in their own political engagements, whether that's online or in conversation or whatever, to, to be able to have that humility that grants to the other person at least something of a respectful hearing as, as a starting point for moving forward toward a greater understanding in the way of knowledge. Yeah, and here I think the Harvard uh, professor of political philosophy, Harvey Mansfield, is helpful because you know what he tells us in, in a variety of his different essays and works is that uh, politics, uh, he'll write, means taking sides. Politics is inherently partisan. Uh, the question is, do you take sides well, or do you take sides in a way that leads to an animus and leads to, to war? Uh, he writes in this great uh, introduction to what politics and political philosophy is, a quote, a partisan difference is in part um, not simply a clash of values with each side blind to the other and with no way to decide between them. A competent judge could ask both sides why they omit what they do, and he could supply reasons even that the parties could not. Such a judge who does this is on the way toward political philosophy. So the Aristotelian method means acting as a competent judge and judging why people have the opinions, why people have the takes on justice or life that they do, uh, and then trying, as he says here, to supply reasons, even if those partisans themselves are unable to do that. And I think that's, that's what uh, I think you rightly said, that that Aristotle's method is optimistic because it, 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 it encourages the political philosopher, it encourages the teacher of political philosophy to come alongside the partisan and to try to make the partisan better. So the, the first big question that Aristotle is trying to apply this method to is the question of how rule ought to work. And, and again, he begins with these current conceptions and he, and he sees different models of rule out there. He sees the relationship between master and slave and husband and wife and parent and child and kings and their peoples. And uh, these are all seemingly different kinds of rule and relationships between the ruler and the ruled. And so, so the question he takes up without initially evaluating any of these is what is the proper form of political rule. Is it, is it one of these? Um, we take something we do in the household and we just sort of writ large. Now we do this for the city. Is it um, a mixture of these in some way? Is, is it different in kind? So this is the first question he takes up. 
And, and one of the ways that he begins to, to work through this is by asking a very fundamental question that we're going to see will eventually be the, the defining question for his division of different forms of government, namely, does a person rule on behalf of the ruled or do they rule on their own behalf? Is, is, is the good of the ruled the essential aspect of their rule and their own good and accidental byproduct of that? Or is their good the essential and maybe the good of the people that are ruled some accidental byproduct, you hope, uh, results by, by feathering the nest of the people with political power? So and, I think, and of, and of yeah. course, he's going to answer that question by saying that the true forms of rule are where you rule with the common good or the common interest in mind, not simply your self-interest. So politics can be the art of trying to use men as means toward your end or using yourself as a means toward their end, which is the good. Yeah, I think this is one of the places where we see a great overlap between Aristotle and the insights of the American founding generation. So if you go through, for example, the Federalist Papers, one of the key themes of the Federalist is the need to link the interest of political leaders with their duty. Their duty is toward justice and the common good. That, that's plainly stated in a number of places. Their interest, of course, is, is to seek their own personal good. And so recognizing the weakness of human nature and the tendency for us to prefer our interest to our duty defined in those ways, then the job of the Constitution, as it's described in the Federalist Papers, is to make those two things overlap, to create rules and contexts where the interest of the political leader is in performing their duty. And so the best way to gain and retain political power, the best way to make a lasting name for yourself under the Constitution, we hope, will be by serving the common good, by, by doing justice to the American people so that you get something good for you alongside the care of the people that ultimately achieves the common good. That's, that's the goal, right? And, and I think, you know, as we examine politics week by week, of course, we, we find instances where we're falling far short of that, you know, where, where we see this, this human tendency to prefer one's political interest or, or even more crass interests uh, to the good. And, and so we're constantly looking for ways to reconnect interest and duty in our political leaders. Yeah, I like the fact that you brought up the example of the authors of The Federalist, because Federalist One be begins with just that, with Alexander Hamilton writing that we can use reflection to help you make a better choice. We as leaders have a, an argument to make, leaders of the argument for the constitution in this case, have an argument to make, and then you're going to be able to, to make a choice. And there are some in our ranks who, who want a new federal constitution, who want that for their own interests. Uh, there are some who don't want a new federal constitution because they believe that it will counter the common good. So uh, Hamilton here is very honest that yes, interest can, can and sometimes align with what is right, but what's, what's essential, right, is that we don't make our personal differences 
the the matter uh, of politics. We we kind of make the common good, and whether or not we're reflecting upon it correctly, and relating those reflections to others well uh, correctly, uh, the purpose uh, of politics. And it shows that this still can be done. A lot of the a lot of modern politics, a lot of politics after Machiavelli, simply assume that there is no such thing as a leader having a duty towards the common good, that all leaders lead uh, for their own interests and all people are led likewise uh, for their own interests as well, that all politics is simply based upon interest. So uh, Aristotle is refreshing in that uh, he, he talks about, yes, interest does play a part in politics, but the common good can play a part as well. And the Federalists, the founders of the United States will, will take up uh, that mantle. And we can still take up that mantle today. Uh, when, when you hear someone uh, in everyday conversation say, oh, they're all in it for themselves. Uh, it's all about interest. Well, no, it does not necessarily have to, to be that case. Certainly, you can point to many examples of politicians uh, who make it about themselves. But you can, I think, also point to human activities where it's not a matter of what an individual is doing for their own interest, but what they're doing for the common good or what they're doing uh, in a way that uh, both um, satisfies their interest and also tends towards the good. You know, one of the things that you find over and over again in the Federalist and is just pervasive in the political thought of the American founding is that there's no paper form to a constitution that can make all these things work, right? It, it, you can design a constitution to create a context in which you can link interest and duty. But, but there's still going to be active work on the part of political leaders and the people themselves to enforce those structures. You know, so I think about you know, the case of Andrew Cuomo. Right? So the report just came out earlier this week um, suggesting that the accusations of sexual harassment against him are credible. You know, the pattern that's being described there is, is just the kind of abuse of power that that we talk about, right? Where, where an individual is using a position of power for the purpose, in this case, of, of their own just base pleasure. There's not really even a, a political angle here to this in any obvious way. But there is a political angle in the accountability. And so what, what's happened? Well, you know, when these accusations first came out, there were a number of people um, across parties that were calling for him to resign. And he didn't resign. And now there's been a further call for him to resign, even President Biden uh, weighed in on that and said he thought he should resign yesterday. But so far, he hasn't resigned. And then there's an impeachment process. Um, and that could easily be a mechanism for removing him from his position, investigate these allegations and other allegations surrounding his work as governor. And so then the question becomes, with the mechanisms that are available, right, the constitutional structures that are in place, will partisanship in essence, trump that? Are there people willing to, to go against their partisan and personal interests for the sake of that? Or is this just going to play out as, as one more instance where we see everybody kind of calculating based upon their own personal and partisan gain? Well, I think the even more obvious example on this front would be what's taking place with COVID right now. You really get the sense when you, you watch the news and you watch things evolve that there's going to be a, a party line on COVID, regardless of what we discover from month to month. So um, you think about uh, most recently, uh, the states like Texas, where, where I live, uh, and Florida being singled out uh, by the Biden administration, uh, even though uh, Texas is right there in the middle uh, in terms of 
cases and deaths. And New York State is the top uh, of deaths, but no one's talking about Cuomo's mishandling of COVID. Uh, no one's talking about uh, if you're a blue state politician, right? You're not talking about uh, blue state choices that have made COVID worse. You're going to try to find that example of where the red state politician has messed something up, or even you don't even have to find something. You just kind of you just say it, and hopefully it'll be true and it'll stick. And, and yet, you know, what's what's lost in that is a thinking through of what might work, what doesn't work, how we might handle, how things are beyond our control uh, with regard to uh, moving from one variant to the next, uh, trying to keep hospitalizations down or deaths down, et cetera. There's there's no well-meant desire to understand the nature of COVID and the the nature of of our ability to deal with it um, in a responsible way. So it, it, it becomes a conversation about uh, political antagonism rather than a, a conversation that involves state, statesmanship and applying uh, prudence to a matter. So it's, it's interesting if, if you followed with this train of thought for today's show, going back to trying to understand the nature of a thing, what's the nature of a household will be the next question that Aristotle tries to resolve. Is the nature of a household uh, simply a means, a place uh, where the unit uh, gets goods, acquires wealth, uh, simply for the desire to uh, maintain uh, one's uh, material well-being, or does the household exist for another uh, purpose? And this question that he'll ask about the household will likewise become a question that he'll ask about the city-state. Is, is the city-state, does it come into being uh, simply to acquire things? Or does it come into being uh, to try to encourage uh, human flourishing among its members? And what we're going to see in all of these conversations, Matt, is that if you think of people, if you think of those who you work with, those who you live with, as simply a means to your end, if you just want to master them or use them as instruments, then you're going to get one way of life. But if you think of those who are around you as your partners uh, in this great affair, which is the human enterprise, and you ask yourself, how, how well or how better can I work in this partnership, uh, then you're going to usually come up with a, a, a much happier uh, ending. Uh, you won't be able to um, to predict all those things that come up in life, but if you have the right character, the right orientation towards others, then politics usually has a more flourishing end. All right. So we'll look forward to that conversation picking up next week. So we're going to close the show with the great book again. Uh, don't worry, Crystal Ball coming back next week is the plan. Uh, we're going to do some NFL season previews for a few weeks. Uh, but this week, we're going to look at some events of the last two weeks where the, both the baseball trading deadline came and went, and now NBA free agency has opened up. So talk about some of the, the big moves, the big deals, and get your grade, Dave, on some of those items. Probably the big headline from the baseball trading deadline was the Washington Nationals fire sale. And this is a you know World Series champion just a couple of years ago. And in a couple of days last week, 
they traded away their, their number one starting pitcher, another starting pitcher, their closer, their one of their setup men, massive number of people that were going out and 12 prospects coming in, 10 of whom are now ranked among their top 30 prospects, uh, including the top two and six of the top 16. So if you had to grade the, the Nationals business last week, what, what, what grade would you give it, Dave? I think I'd give it an A just because so many teams today follow that model where they have a, a window for a couple of years and then that window goes away for a, you know, part of a cycle, five or six years. And then you're always maybe every decade trying to have those one or two opportunities to win the World Series. I think the first team that did this well, the Florida Marlins, where you know they really had nothing and they built up these great teams, sold off the great teams only to build them up again. Uh, so it, in, in a way, if you can win two championships, one or two championships every decade, you're really doing well uh, in any of these leagues. Uh, but it, it's not an A plus for this reason. The, the the team or the method that would be an A plus is is really the greatest franchise in all of sports history, the New England Patriots, who are always able, other than kind of last year, to be in it until the end. Uh, so uh, it's it's probably the best possible method given the nature of sports, and I think the Nationals did it well last week. Yeah, so I I probably gave it a little bit lower grade. They did get a good haul of prospects. There's no question about that. And, you know, you get the Dodgers' top two prospects coming back, especially in the Trey Turner, Max Scherzer trade. That's that's good. But, uh, you know, most of them were 23, 24, 25 years old. And so, you know, they didn't they didn't get any 19-year-old future Vlad Guerrero Juniors probably. Um, and, and so, you know, if there's not a superstar in this group, then, you know, they may be a good team a few years from now, but I, I wonder if they've really secured for themselves another championship window. Okay. Now NBA free agency is just getting underway, but as always, most of the interesting deals happen within like three hours of it opening up. I guess the NFL is kind of the same way. We were noting that last, last year when the Patriots signed, what was it? 33 players in, in, in 15 minutes, something like that. But, um, but we've got a couple big signings just briefly get your thoughts on here, Dave. So, Atlanta Hawks uh, signed Trey Young, five-year extension, $207 million. There's, there's no salaries like NBA salaries if you're a top player. Uh, what, what do you think of that deal? I don't like it I, well, because I, I don't think um, Young plays defense. Uh, I don't think at the end of the day uh, what he's adding to the Hawks is, is worth one-third uh, of their payroll. And you know, I think of some teams this past year like the Knicks that without really any stars were able to be very competitive in the league. And, and I wonder why a lot of these NBA teams aren't trying to build uh, those rosters where you have, you know, eight great players and, and you try to divvy up um, that 120 million or so that's a salary cap among the eight, but that's just not the way the NBA is. I, I guess if it's um, if it's a player who is kind of once in a generation uh, like Giannis, Yes, I'd pay him forty million. I just don't think Trey Young is that player, so I'd give this a C minus. Okay, yeah, I think I'm probably going to give it a little higher grade. I'd say more like a, a C plus, but it does seem like there's some maybe recency bias here. You know that the Hawks made a great run in the playoffs, and Trey Young was great during that. 
And so will they regret this down the road if, if he doesn't develop further? I mean, he's, he's been an all-star once, never made an all-NBA team. So you know, he's a very, very good player, obviously a great scorer and had a great playoff run. But if he's not going to be a, a lockdown defender, is, is that going to be repeated in the years to come? The, the other big uh, signing was Chris Paul, uh, 36-year-old Chris Paul, opting out of a $44.2 million contract for next year with Phoenix Suns, and then immediately re-upping for four years and $120 million. Great bit of business for him, I'd say, but what do you think about it from the Suns' perspective? Well, if he's in great shape at the age of 36, I don't see any reason why he couldn't play uh, four more years. Certainly, uh, his uh, his background uh, is, is has, he has much longer um, history of just being an excellent player, and and what he did with that Suns team uh, was was amazing. Just his leadership, you know, on and off the court, and yeah, okay, he's making thirty million, so it's one quarter uh, of the salary cap uh, in Phoenix. But in in that sense, he may I think he's much more worth that thirty million than Young is worth uh, forty million, given what Paul means to that franchise. So I probably be more likely to give this a, a BB plus um, not, not um, ecstatic over the fact that a one player or two players are, are making such a great percentage of the, of the overall wealth. But uh, in this case, it's probably uh, more prudent. Yeah. I think it's probably a B it's, it's a classic case in my mind of, of a, of a contract that will look good for a couple of years and probably look bad for a couple of years because you know, it, it maybe, maybe Chris Paul at 39, 40 is going to be as great as he was this year. That would be historically very unusual for an NBA player. And of course, again, a great run by the Phoenix Suns. And so there's all kind of reason to want to bring the team back and reload and, and go after it again. And maybe they can do that. Maybe they can have another great playoff run, but it may be if, if that doesn't happen and they're, you know, second round exit next year, first run exit the year after, you might be sorry you've got $30 million tied down in years three and four for Chris Paul. All right, that's going to wrap it up for today. Thank you, as always, for joining us. We'll be back, Lord willing, next week. In the meantime, feel free to reach out to us at democracyinamericatoday at gmail.com and certainly encourage you to subscribe and review the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. We'll talk to you soon. Take care.